Chapter 3 Women are supposed to be very calm generally, but women feel just as men feel. Charlotte Bronte, Jane Eyre The first working day at Proctor's Dead's was both a success and a complete failure. I arrived at the house promptly after my bracing walk. A maid smirked without trying to hide it too much. There were whispers in the corridor and wide-eyed, pointed glances at my sober dress. Sly looks. Nothing I hadn't experienced before. My weathered cloak was borne away with poorly concealed distaste. Perhaps I was being too sensitive. But everything then, the slightest look or ill-chosen word, seemed to ring with judgment. Domestic servants and governesses are uneasy bedfellows. The children ate their way through good amounts of porridge and buttered toast. This was dished out with ill grace by a girl with a face the colour and texture of the cooked oats she was serving. More tea, miss, she asked, sailing past with a pot and managing to look simultaneously martyred and cross. After breakfast, we were allowed in the garden before lessons and spent the time picking windfalls. Meg ran to where the trugs were stacked on a low wall and we examined the fruit for wasp burrowing. Target practice was set up with the unsuspecting dog, and so it began. No, Master James, leave him, I said, as the dog started to look beleaguered. Well, it was an early opportunity to establish some rules, seemly ways of behaving. He likes it, Miss Wilson, really. We do this all the time. His sister watched him reach for more of the rotten fruit. The dog shuffled a little to the left in the direction of the gate. It didn't look as if it would manage a dart of speed, and I knew with the quickening of my pulse that my first intervention must be a real one. That it had to be on behalf of a dog struck me as absurd, but still, there was a pause as the weight of uncertain authority hung suspended. Set up a proper target! I suggested, keeping my voice level, although my heart jumped at the possible confrontation. Like Robin Hood. He looked at me sideways, eyes narrowed, snared by the idea. I suppose he was considering rebellion, and I'm not sure what stopped him. Pity, maybe. Or the thought of outlaws and bows and arrows instead of rough wooden catapults. Girls at school didn't challenge in that lazy, cheerful way. They said... Yes, miss. No, miss. And whilst being quietly, even malevolently subversive, there was never outright defiance. Our cousins, he said, still watchful, use their dogs as targets. They shoot at them, over their heads, and pretend they're hunters. Our cousins are stupid. Charlie, come here. Meg clicked for the dog, who sidled towards her gratefully. A small epiphany was happening. Cunning and distraction might be two most useful tools. Brute force and scatchered sarcasm would fall on deaf ears here. James looked across at his sister, frowning, his mouth slightly ajar. In one smooth movement, she hugged the dog and lobbed an apple towards his head. It was enough. He looked stunned, then gave a yelp of laughter. The moment where each felt the need to establish something had passed. With the sun slicing through the floor of the upper rooms, lessons commenced. The window was opened 
and a drunken wasp droned through. I wasn't alone in trying out a little cunning distraction, and there was much vigorous thwacking with a book, so the lesson was quickly forgotten. Given that a live wasp is far more exciting than a dead one, the thwacking was half-hearted. The noise wasn't. It was as if berserkers had suddenly inhabited the room. No one noticed, amid the racket, the door opening. Kitty, sullen maid of the breakfast table, stood aside as Mrs Armstrong dominated the threshold. Miss Wilson! All syllables were at maximum vocal range. Force repelled the w of Wilson out with a honking sound. The children stopped. The wasp, audacious, banged against the glass on the open pane and then disappeared. Hot to begin with, I felt the temperature rise at the base of my neck and itch at the temples. The discomfort was compounded by muted snuffling from the children. Ignoring them, I had to compose my puce face, squaring my shoulders. This scene fills me with merriment now. My poor, serious self, trying so hard. Wasps, Mrs Armstrong, a distraction only, and the children have been working well. I took care not to look at the angels in question. Come, Master James, Meg, back to your books. Assuming a briskness and authority at odds with my whirring thoughts and pumping heart, I conducted the berserkers back to their seats with what I hoped was an authoritarian wave of the hand. The gazers at the door burned. Report to me, please, Miss Wilson, before you leave today. I would like to know of the progress you've made. No more distractions. She pursed her lips and glared, as if the wasp had been dis summoned deliberately for a jape. Children! No more noise. It is taxing to come up these stairs and find you behaving in an unseemly manner. Blonde and dark heads bowed. Your father shall hear of this. The rest of the morning, although not as carnivalesque, was disturbing in another way for a newly appointed tutor. I sat with James at first. He mangled his reading passages, becoming flustered, repeating details and losing his place his voice at once loud with frustration, then almost inaudible. In the corner, Meg sat at her own little table. She was still, as if a reminder of her presence might snap some tenuous thread which held the lesson together. We moved from reading to arithmetic into murkier waters. I felt we were sailing towards the very gates of despair as my entrant to grammar school education began counting clumsily on his fingers instead of calculating in his head. Lowood wrung every ounce of girlishness from its pupils, but it had them counting without an abacus early. You had a governess before. I was sure this was the case, but there seemed little evidence of it. Again, the sideways glance I would come to recognise as Armstrong evasiveness. James raised his head a fraction so that a viscous layer of tears caught the light. I told you, Miss Wilson, I like to be outside on the estate. I know I've got to go to school, cos father says, but I just... He sighed, picked at a loose nail. I just don't like it very much. A bilious wave slopped round inside my stomach as I knew I could be held accountable for this, regardless of what might come before me. I was culpable for his results in a way I hadn't been at Lowood. But he looked like a little boy now, not the threatening cult he seemed at first. 
He was hunched in his wooden chair, flushed with effort, his hair sticking in darker streaks to his forehead. The open window moved the tang of young sweat around the room. We persevered until lunch, by which time the atmosphere was fogged with defeat. An afternoon outside seemed like a tonic. There would be no chair of infamy here and no labels or badges of any sort. Remembering the garden as a place of healing and at times delightful alliance. Jane, small and quick as a wren, my friend in a difficult time. I settled on botany as a viable area of study and the children didn't need much convincing. They fetched some paper and pencils as scholarly alibis and we spent relieved hours combing the thick shrubberies in the paddock. Will you like it here, do you think, Miss Wilson? Meg sat, head bowed and scratching at a paper. I'm sure I'll like it. In the north, with no one you know here. I know the Naismiths. Well, I know Mrs Naismith. I've lived in the north my whole life. No, Miss Wilson, our father says you come from Yorkshire. I know that's away from us and no one speaks like us down there. That's true, but still, it's a wild and beautiful place, like here. You're all new, you and the Naismiths that you live with. Yes, we're all new, but people are kind. I'm sure I shall feel welcome. She looked up from her paper. People aren't always kind, if you're different from them. She bent over again and hunched her back to me. I sat subdued and knowing it would be a mistake to break the silence. After a stretch of absorption, she raised herself and held a paper and bored out at arm's length. What cascaded across whole pages could again teach a swift lesson in governess expectations. There were fragments of bone-pale shell, furred leaves bitten by decay, so their edges withered and curled. A shattered horse chestnut, its inside raw and naked, so clear, Meg. I couldn't resist stroking around the penciled edges and curves. I could pick them off the page, turn them over. The ends of her dark brown hair moved on the paper. I still have the drawings here, a little faded but remarkable still. Like father's books. I want my pictures to be like the books in the library, except I've no colours here. I'd like to be an explorer, Miss Wilson. An explorer? And where would you explore, do you think? Wales, she answered rather surprisingly, and yet the reply was firm, given in an instant. West, to Ireland, across the sea, and then west again, and then I'd keep going. Oh, and your ship? Oak, English, like the Elizabethans, or at the start of the tempest, but without the terrible storm. Oh, an enchanter on an island? Oh, yes. We'll deliver him back to Milan, won't we, Charlie? A tale thump from the dog. But we'll leave the daughter behind. Miranda? Why? It would bring Caliban on board. More interesting all round, Miss Wilson. Someone had been raiding the library. Storing away this unexpected information to alleviate other dolorous sessions as the weather turned. Map-making, perhaps. I was reminded of Miss Temple, and a face in the firelight turned towards Helen Burns. Meg's always gone her own way. She's still a voyager, of sorts.
I smoothed the dark head. Time for tea. The past was shrugged off, left in the garden, as the sky turned from faded sail blue to silver mackerel scales. Later, pulling my bootlaces tight and stretching until my tired bones cracked, I prepared to summarise the day for Mrs Armstrong. Another deep breath, more stomach churning. I knocked on the door of the drawing room. No answer. Knock again? Yes, a little firmer. Nothing. Eager to start walking before the light faded on unfamiliar paths, I considered my options. I couldn't go, not when I'd been summoned to give an account of myself. But standing outside the door, vacant? Imagine the gossip in the kitchen. Aye, she was just standing there. Aye, knee brains, really. Just top show, and not a lot of that. Laughter. Casual and dismissive. I went down to pick up my bag. At least it would look as if I was in transit, even if I wasn't, when the door clicked open. Starting up and ready in an instant to apologise, it was, however, Kitty who emerged from the room carrying a small tray. She tried to close the door behind her and I moved to help in a sort of awkward gavotte where no eye contact was made. My dancing partner in this shuffling made a panicked noise as the door pushed against her and another figure emerged, cannoning into the tray. More incoherent exclamations, a cup and following saucer crashed to the floor. There was a suspended moment when Kitty, reflexes quicker, bobbed down to collect the debris and I could see over the bent back and into a pair of dark eyes. Chips of flint. I, I knocked. Not loudly enough. The man was tall and had Jock's accent, but softer, polished round the edges. Girl, for heaven's sake, he exclaimed at the fuss around his ankles and the ineffect of mopping with a tray cloth. If Kitty were a dog, he'd have kicked her. He gave a curt nod and I bobbed down quickly, less of a curtsy and more of a cringe. By the time I'd straightened, he'd disappeared across the hall and out the side door. When I looked back, Kitty's eyes were sliding away as she gathered herself and began to walk. Who was that? I called to a fast retreating back. There was just enough distance and echoed clicking of shoes for this to be plausibly ignored. And then there was noise outside the front of the house. Kitty reappeared, jack-in-the-box, to open the door and curtsied. She was back in control and threw across a covert, viperish look as she helped Mrs Armstrong off with bonnet, cape, gloves. Uh, Miss Wilson, do you stand the gaping girl? My face, without a doubt, had a lunatic, frenzied aspect to it. Too many doors opening and shutting. Too much unspoken already. I was unsure of who I'd just met and had no idea why everyone seemed so short-tempered and furtive. Madam, I... Come, this way, please. I wish to speak to you about your progress with the children. She moved lightly on her feet for one so apparently fatigued and sashayed through the doorway to the left, ringing the bell for tea. This seemed to be a morning room. My map of the house reorientated again, with watered silk walls and a spindly walnut desk in the corner, like a delicate spider. Now, Miss Wilson, sit before me. I have my views about my visit to the schoolroom today. We must be clear about your work here. I, 
No, shush now. I wish to speak. Mrs Armstrong held up her fleshy pink palm to halt any protest. Her head was raised, eyes half-closed, eyebrows disappearing, looking like she was about to sing a vigorous operatic solo. With full lips and a rounded face, she had a fleshy, theatrical sensuality. Short arms framed a curvaceous figure. Her hands were small and dimpled like a child's. She was not as old as she'd first appeared, and she didn't age terribly well in the end. Your role is a functional one. James has been too long at home, and he is, I believe, too old for a governess. So you are to be a tutor, Miss Wilson, and you will ensure that his education is fitting for entry to grammar school in the spring. He has been free to roam around the farm for a preposterous amount of time. Madam, I'm a little concerned. No. The hand was raised again. No speaking yet, Miss Wilson. It is I who must teach you a little of our expectations. I looked down, in case my face was now rearranging itself from lunatic to mutineer. But still with me was that little boy and the morning's sticky humiliation. Mrs Armstrong's voice was hard and loud, but the warble seemed to have disappeared. We expect our son to be tutored well. Our daughter should be prepared to take her place with the other eligible girls of the district. She is... Mrs Armstrong's eyes moved to the top corner of the room, her brow puckered. An odd little thing, and your aim is to make a... Again, a pause. Not exactly lost for words, but certainly searching for them. I waited, thinking of the budding adventurer. It came, four leaden syllables. Acceptable! There was a vulgar bang as Kitty brought in tea. Only one china cup suggested that my release was imminent. Mrs Armstrong turned her attention to the tray, her small eyes brightening. It seemed the Armstrongs broke their fast in the new manner. Silvery clock bells chimed. Settling herself back at the fireside, she looked surprised to see the governess still in the room. Oh, Miss Wilson, that will be all. And as an afterthought, think on what I've said. Kitty, show Miss Wilson out, please. I murmured a low farewell whilst in transit. We left the room at a smart pace. My back still waited in the hallway and had to be snatched up on the march to the side door. This was thrust open and slammed shut, which was startling. Why such anger? But might be wearing after a while. The word acceptable clanged in my head. Such a vapid word without real meaning. I've learned that being accepted depends on context, so I thought I was dull and plain, austere of dress, and the Brocklehurst women, with their plumes and feathers, they were like exotic parrots. We were acceptable if we stuck to our own habitats. What of Meg Armstrong, the would-be traveller? Stay here? Unacceptable meant one thing. Off on your ship, sailing over the western horizon and onwards, well... That would mean something very different. My new role seemed more complicated than it had, and failure loomed before I'd even begun. It was only the first day, but it had been a long one. Rounding the headland, breathing in the cold air, I looked out again over the liquid grey silk of the northern sea. There, in that instant, 
out a little way, the luminous curve of a back and a fin broke the surface, caught the light. My eyes strained to distinguish the creature, creatures now, from the water. In the sleepless time to come, I would summon this vision to my mind's eye. For now, I was simply transfixed. Autumn 3. Madam, I welcome you to the area and must proffer congratulations to you on your marriage and new life here. I have heard good things about your husband's parish and the reforms he seeks to make. You are, of course, to visit us at your leisure and will be received by my wife. We no longer have a place for the possessions of which you speak in your letter, given their owner departed this world some years since and was not known by the present Mrs Burns. You must dispose of them as you see fit. Yours, etc. John Burns Marriage is a business, and we went about it as diligent employees. Always expectancy hung in the house. Something, the very heir said, should happen soon. I'd fallen out of the way of anticipating the future. During the worst of the sickness at school, this would have been hard to bear. In my new life here, time is a line, not a wheel. In the past, classes passed on to be replaced by other classes the same age, similar faces. Now, we have stepped off that wheel together, Nan. Eliza grows a little with each visit. Meg Armstrong does the same. I think it's true that if the wheel keeps moving, you must stumble a little or even fall as you get down. However, you seem to move through life now with some purpose, with a surer step. I met Dr Hudson when we first moved north and started to be on visiting terms with our neighbours. He's a single man, so came to dine with us alone, and I remember thinking that he had a rather vulpine look about him, with tawny hair and sleek whiskers. I was unprepared for his visit some six weeks later, just before your arrival. I saw the carriage bowling up the drive, then spilling him out with his little terrier dog yapping and jumping beside him. I was panicked by the unsolicited visit. It was late afternoon and overcast. We exchanged wary pleasantries. We talked about the gloomy weather. I assumed that the area was blessed with neighbours who were simply neighbourly. In this, I was wrong. It was predictable that Dr Hudson would inquire about how I'd settled in. Did I have all I needed? Had I made some acquaintances? His keen eyes took all in. Less predictable? Was I happy with my new position as a clergyman's wife? As if I would ever be able to say no. Entirely surprising? Was I content? As he asked, the doctor edged closer head dipping, still watching. I could smell him, a sweet miasma. Before I could reply, he shifted position, laid down his cup and told me that my husband had requested a consultation. With, with me? I asked him, half laughing in surprise. He gave a thin smile but did not speak, standing as I blushed and stumbled 
uncomprehending. When he removed his coat, I realised that he was not going, but making ready to stay. Come over to the window, Mrs Naismith, and sit down for me. Dr Hudson, I... Come now, my dear, a quick look at you, and we can talk about how best to proceed. Dr Hudson? My voice sounded shrill. There was a low, answering growl from the terrier, and somewhere down in the house I could hear a replying bark from our own dog, shut away. Really, Mrs Naismith, there is no need. I have no... We spoke at the same time, and then stopped. I moved behind the chair. Your husband, he began in a lower tone, has asked me to ascertain whether there may be problems with the establishment of a family. Children, he said with delicacy, as if I did not understand. Women of learning can find that where their energies have been diverted, that which is natural is displaced or even despoiled by his sentence, incomprehensible anyway, faded. Some of the horror I felt must have shown in my face. The doctor was a fool, and I'd grown to hate his kind like some of the useless cowards at Lowood who refused to visit when the sickness was at its height. If the doctor and the husband had formed an alliance, I would need to be cautious. The scrutiny of a man of God and a man of science would make slim pickings of me. I think of Mr Wilkes's English Moths and Butterflies, a beautiful volume of colour plates, and imagine myself a pale moth, a mere wainscot perhaps, drab and hardly worthy of the study. If I felt the disappointment of my husband's betrayal, I felt no surprise. Not today, then. I will speak with your husband again, Mrs Naismith. I'm sure you will, you sly old fox, I thought, but stayed silent. Nothing could come of nothing. Your age, the lateness of the marriage and your circumstances may be conspiring against you, perhaps? His last word was long and distorted. His teeth were vile. I set my shoulders back, looked a little over and above his left ear and bid him good afternoon. The carriage left. I placed a hand on my stomach for warmth. Blood had pooled and dried in one fingernail. Mr Burns lives inland from here, through Annick and out into the wilder country. I've suggested that you might like to go for market day and then I will continue on, Nan, and leave you, my chaperone, with some pennies for ribbon and jock to keep you safe. I will be visiting a distant friend of a parishioner with some knitting wisdom and a rare way with herbs for health or some such story. More subterfuge. Brocklehurst words. This girl is a liar. And I am. My scripture for the day to my husband, the clergyman. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. But another voice whispers, gentle and insistent. Life appears to me too short to be spent in nursing animosity or registering wrongs. Just in the corner of the window seat, 
a butterfly bangs against the glass. I cup its flutterings in my hand and take it outside. It brushes over my bloody fingers before it lifts. On our wedding night, I was relieved. I had no experience and was glad that my confusion couldn't be seen. He turns me away from him now, saying it will help to conceive. I look at the wall and concentrate, hair trapped and snagging or pulled at like reins. Each time it feels like a little death, the weight pressing down rather than a way to life.